Hi, welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Helen Sullivan from the Walkley Foundation. Today's podcast is about the craft of arts writing. It was recorded as part of our regular Walkley Media Talks at the State Library of New South Wales. It's a cracking panel of arts writers and critics, as you'll hear, including the ABC's digital arts editor Dee Jefferson, Jules Lefebvre from Junkie, writer John Shand, who won the 2017 Walkley Award for Arts Journalism, and the Australian's Ashley Wilson. Enjoy! Welcome to tonight's Walkley Media Talk, hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. I'm Helen Sullivan, the Walkley's Communications Manager. First, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the elders past and present of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. The Walkley Foundation celebrates and supports great Australian journalism, and arts writing and criticism are a vital part of this. At the moment, entries are open for our two Arts Journalism Awards, the Walkley Pascal Prize for Arts Criticism and the Walkley Arts Journalism Award, both of which come with a $5,000 cash prize for the winner. Arts reporting, as many of you here know, is often one of the first things to be cut or scaled down when newsrooms have belts to tighten. And yet, it is so important to interpret and reflect on works of art. Despite us of grumbling to the contrary, people care. We care about what Ai Weiwei has to say about Australian immigration. We care about Tracy Min's 70 tiny bronze birds placed throughout the city. And most of all, we should care about how Australian artists, diverse Australian artists, express Australian life. It has never been more important to find new ways to support quality journalism, which is why this year the Walkley Foundation is leveraging our reputation and position at the heart of the industry to build a broad funding base that will contribute directly to a sustainable, thriving, trusted media. We'll be able to reveal more about this soon, but what I can say for now is that our tax-deductible status means that we can seek philanthropic support for programs that will give back to journalism. And on May 11th, we will be hosting our inaugural Walkley Fund for Journalism dinner. Flies with all of the details are available as you leave. Our speakers tonight are John Shand, Jules Lefebvre, Ashley Wilson, and as a participating moderator, Dee Jefferson. Dee is the arts editor for ABC News Online and has been in the role since December. Previously, she was the national arts and culture editor for Time Out, and before that, the arts editor for Sydney Street Press, Bragg. Dee has been writing about the arts, but also doing radio and now video for about 15 years. Please welcome Dee. Rather than me kind of trying to encapsulate uh, the careers of these people here, maybe if you can introduce yourselves, but sort of say, I guess, not just what your role is, but what it involves on a day-to-day basis, because I think people don't always realise, um, and what you in particular write about mostly. Sure. Okay, I'll go first. My name is Jules Lefebvre. I'm the music writer at Junkie Media, so I write predominantly across our music website, Music Junkie, and also the dance music website in the mix. So on a day-to-day basis, I'm responsible for most of the news reporting about music that goes up on the two sites. It's not busy at all, at all. (laughs) And I cover a lot of features and festivals and interview a lot of artists. And so that's sort of my day-to-day job. So I write predominantly about dance music and pop music and mainstream music, but also anything else that falls into my lap, basically. I'm Ashley Wilson. I'm the arts editor for The Australian. Um, And my job is basically to oversee all the arts coverage. Daily paper, we have um, an arts page each day. We have a weekend section review which is edited by um, review editor Tim Douglas. But my job is basically to, to be across all the arts coverage in general and help coordinate that. There's obviously a lot more to it, but in a nutshell, that's it. Hello, I'm John Shand. I write for Fairfax about theatre and music, music of all sorts. 
live concerts, album reviews, theater, I don't sleep much, I uh, am out late and up early, and in addition to writing reviews and pieces of music, journalism, I edit the page of album reviews in the Saturday Sydney Morning Herald. Just because I have you all here and I'm curious, could you kind of estimate how many nights a week you might be out seeing the arts? I'll guess at 12 a month. I'd probably about the same. Between reviews and festivals and sort of interviews and random music industry events, probably about, yeah, about a fortnight out of the month you're out of the house doing things. I think I might have been around that, around that rate at some point a few years ago. Although I'm, I'm not a critic, so I don't need to, to write about these things, but of course I need to, 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 to be aware of what's going on. But I, I have a small kid and um, took the opportunity to favour sleep over late nights in, in recent times. Cool. And uh, another kind of basic question, but one that I think gives a good sense of uh, who you are and where you approach arts writing from, um, if you can just sort of try and briefly encapsulate how you got into being an, an arts journalist? Well, basically, I grew up in Byron Bay and I grew up going to Blues Fest every single year of my life. I'll be going there next week and I think it's my 17th one. I'm 25, so that's a lot out of my life. And I knew I always loved music and I knew I always loved writing, but I never wanted to be a musician because I was not a good enough musician. And my sister was a professional singer and she wasn't going to make any money and I didn't want to do that. Although now I'm an arts journalist, so I don't make any money either. So here we are. <laughs> And then I sort of realised that music journalism was a thing and I became obsessed with Rolling Stone and Hunter S. Thompson and all of those great writers and, and gonzo journalists and I wanted to be able to write those big, beautiful profile pieces and I wanted to look at music not just as something that you had fun to but something that was a legitimate art form and it just really fascinated me as a not only the music but also the journalism about it. And so ever since I was about 14, I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. And I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't become a music journalist, actually. I don't like to think about that. <laughs> I'm just going to keep going on this one for as long as I can. 17 years. Um, talking about not being a very good musician, um, and that's a segue into how I began it. I put myself through high school and uni by playing piano around Sydney in various ensembles. My intention was to go to the con and have a... a a glitchering, lowly paid career um, as a musician. Uh, they wouldn't let me in there. So I went off to Sydney Uni and eventually became a journal. And I worked in, I mean, we're talking a lot about arts journalism here, but I'd like to take the first word off that a little bit. I've, you know, I've been a, a journalist for a, a, a while and I was down correspondent for the Australian for a number of years between Falconio and the intervention, basically. So there's some stuff happening and kind of returned after that back to Sydney, kind of the, the vestiges of, of the previous life helped push me towards the arts pages and that's where I'm like this living. In 1981, I was some combination of a playwright and a drummer and someone was coming to Australia on tour for whose music I had the highest regard. So I had a curiosity to meet this person the only way I could see to achieve that outcome was to interview them. And I never thought about really being a journalist. I'd never thought about interviewing people. I just rang up the editor of the magazine and said, would you take an interview on this person? 
and the editor in question hadn't heard of the person that I was pitching. So I must have done a reasonable job of selling the idea and uh, got a yes and duly organised the interview and then found I got paid for doing this. And I thought, that's an interesting development because I was doing quite a lot that I didn't get paid for doing at the time. And so in the next issue of said magazine, I had another article and then I saw that there were also album reviews and live reviews and I thought, well, why can't I do that too? And so one thing led to another. That that magazine folded after six years, I think. Some years later, I got a very unexpected phone call from the Sydney Morning Herald when I had $15 in the bank asking me if I'd like to come and be, a, be their jazz critic. And I didn't think about it for very long. <laughs> Who was the original person you interviewed? Lester Bowie, trumpeter, American, now deceased. He was the co-leader of the Art Ensemble of Chicago, one of my favourite bands of all time. And, um, and, it, and it was a dazzlingly good way to begin a career in music journalism because he was funny, he was cooperative, he was affable, and I learned a great deal about music and about the gentle art of prizing information out of people. That's one of the fun things about our job is, is you know, the different way we whinge about late hours and low pay and all that, but oftentimes we get to meet people we really like. Yes. And every now and then, I'm sure everyone has stories like this, that, that you get people that you're interviewing as a total fan and you have to sort of suppress that or embrace it, I guess. Mm. Well, now I just want to ask what everyone's favourite and least favourite part of the job is. I can say <laughs> lack of sleep is my least favourite part. And my favourite part is writing. Actually, particularly writing critiques more than journalism, probably. I actually like reviewing things. I like the process. With the proviso that when I see a really naff play and have to call it out, it's a little bit debilitating for a couple of hours, but I recover. I will jump in and just say that I, my favourite bit, uh, unexpectedly, since writing is all I've ever been able to do well, my favourite thing is actually talking to people, the interview process. Um, yeah, although I love the writing as well. And I would say probably transcribing is my least favourite. Yeah, I would have to agree. Transcribing is the worst part for it. Like, yeah. Good Lord, I've spent hours upon hours upon hours. And thankfully there are computer programs now that do it for you and that was maybe the greatest moment of my life when I found out somebody else could do this for me. <laughs> I haven't got one of those. No, not around. <laughs> oh, I'll I tell know. you afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, interviewing, that would be probably the most favourite part, being able to talk one-on-one -on -one with these artists that, yeah, you're them, the most massive fan of their work and they're sitting right in front of you and just happy to have this quite casual conversation and it never fails to blow my mind, absolutely. Yeah, and we get to we get exposed to a lot of good things, um, get to see a lot of shows and... Um, that you, you know, you get quite blasé about it. So it's it, it's quite quite annoying watching people like us sometimes just talking about having to go to another opening night of whatever. And, um, and you know, if, we, if only we had to buy our tickets, how how much perverted that would be. But but I think that the best part of the job is, is making the case for what we do and making the case for the things that we do. And the worst part is the same. I agree. Yeah. Just wanted to head back to another kind of revealing question, I guess, which is what your favourite arts writers are? That can be critics or not. My favourite arts writers are, I have four that I've always really admired, and they're Eve Barlow, Laura Snapes, Jessica Hopper and Megan Garvey. 
and a couple of them. Eve Barlow and Laura Snapes used to write for NME for a long time, RIP NME, finished their print edition a couple of weeks ago, which was very sad. And a couple of the others have all written for Pitchfork. And they're just incredibly wonderful long form writers, incredibly insightful. And it was their writing that first taught me that pop music wasn't a dirty word, that you could actually analyse pop music and it was just as meaningful as jazz, it was just as meaningful as blues, it was just as meaningful as any other type of genre. But for a long time, the thought that I would be writing about pop music if I saw myself when I was 15, I would be horrified. I would have, no, it wouldn't, no, I couldn't have let myself even listen to pop music. But reading their words about the relevance of pop music and how it can still send a powerful message and how it's relevant was, was really important to, to me in learning to write. Uh, I'll just mention one person. I did a Whopper event with last year in, in Adelaide, um, Sebastian Smee. He, he's an Adelaide boy. He went to work for the Herald first, the first real major job as an art critic, and then he went to the Australian, and, and from there bounced to the States, and he went to become the Boston Globe's art critic, won a Pulitzer, and a couple of months ago he got poached by the Washington Post. Is, is a big deal in the art world, is the nicest guy in the art world, hands down. Um, and, uh, but that's not the reason. The, the reason is the stuff he does, the stuff he writes. When, when you read good critics, like the, the best of The New Yorker, for instance, will, will, you can read about a movie that you'll never see or a book you'll never read and it'll be interesting uh, and you'll want to read to the end. And you won't necessarily have any intention of seeing that, seeing the, the things they're writing about. Sebastian can write about an exhibition that is in, in Boston or Washington or wherever, and you'll never see it necessarily. But it's fascinating, and he sort of brings this enthusiasm and um, skill as a writer that makes everything he does really interesting. And it's a very, very rare skill that he has. Um, so he's a good one to put up in life. I very much admire the British writer Jeff Dyer. I like the New York critic and academic Carol Bloom. I don't actually read critics and haven't done so for 25 years that come anywhere near the areas I write about myself. I avoid them like the plague. Um, I think it's too easy to have your own perspective coloured by someone else's perspective and I'd rather be wrong on my own terms than wrong on someone else's terms if you like. So I quite like reading critics outside of my areas. Uh, film critics, for instance, I don't write about cinema anymore. Do that from time to time, but otherwise, yeah, it tends to be more encountering the arts through reading biographies, perhaps, and uh, and otherwise shying away from seeing what um, other people thought about a play or thought about a band or thought about any sort of performance that I'm may be covering, may cover in the future or anything like that. Yeah, I definitely struggle with that as well. Like, attention to wanting to know what's going on and not wanting to be too affected yeah, by other There's a danger experience. of groupthink and it's widespread and I think it's poisonous and the only convincing way to avoid being poisoned is to simply never read the other opinions. And, and the opposite of that as well is that, in, in a sense, um, with, with the group thing, thing, you see critics who make a point of going to the opposite extreme. Uh, if someone's being very praiseworthy of something, numerous mm. um, yeah, examples of this, couldn't possibly name it, um, who will 
take great delight in trashing something that people are praising or vice versa. Yeah, there's such a wide spectrum of um, like criticism to reviewing and styles that it's really hard to even talk about it as a whole genre in one event. I'm curious, I mean, you've touched on some of them, but what as writers, readers, editors, whatever perspective you want to come at it from, what some of your uh, pet peeves are when you're reading things? Just as a whole, piousness in, in writing and criticism <laughs> is something that I just have never, I just can't abide. When you read something that's just filled with condescension and the writer is talking down about an artist or a genre or anything like that, it just instantly, it turns me off because it's, it, I just hate it so much. And I think we're seeing the end of that now and I think that's sort of, it's dying off a little bit and I think as new media is coming along, there's a lot more perspectives coming in saying everything's valid, everything, you can like whatever you want, it's not, it's not lesser than another thing, but it's still prevalent in a, lot of, in a lot of areas and a lot of radio stations. So I think that's definitely the biggest thing for me. I just get bugged by bad writing, um, just badly constructed sentences. I do. It just troubles me sometimes that you know, someone's got to a certain age and they haven't bothered to read George Orwell or Jane Austen or someone and figure out how to put words one after another so that the sentence is elegant and makes sense. I, I'm worried I might be touching on something that we could be coming to soon, but what, what, something that, that concerns me with, with arts, journalism and criticism. There was an article written a couple of years back by John Lethley, who's a restaurant critic, works for the Australian, now used to work for the age. He was basically making the point that he doesn't work for the restaurant industry. It's neither here nor there if a particular restaurant survives or thrives for him. Obviously, as a human, he, he, his duty is to the reader. His duty is not to the restaurant. Sometimes they're the same person, but one of the greatest threats, I think, and to art journalism being taken seriously is when the writers fall into the trap of basically being boosters um, for any particular any particular thing. And we don't work for the arts. Uh, we're, we're not part of the arts industry, um, in my opinion. Um, we're, 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 we, we're the journalists. We're the writers, we, and the duty is to the reader, and not to the to the musician or the artist or the theatre maker being written about. And you would be surprised how much that is fundamentally misunderstood across the industry, um, both from the practitioner's point of view and um, some of the writers. Uh, I think it's it's sort of at the core of what we do, and when when that sort of line gets broken down talking about what you like and don't like, that irritates me. I completely agree, and I think that's a massive problem ongoing in the music industry um, and the music and music journalism industries because those two industries are very intertwined. You know all of the public relations people, you know everyone at the labels, and there's a, a very strong pressure to write about artists in a certain way, and if you don't write about artists in a certain way, they will get incredibly angry and it will have ongoing consequences. And there's a lot of money flying around from a lot of, of these labels and a lot of brands and it can be incredibly hard for you to draw that line and say, no, we need to have editorial integrity. We are not a PR company for you. We and are critics and journalists. We don't have the same job. Yeah. And their, their job in oftentimes is to, I don't want to generalise, but um, from a publicity point of view, the job is to promote a particular album or show or whatever, and which is why oftentimes we get offered interviews with people. Because their show's coming out next week, the movie's out next week, and that benefits us. But it's the fact that people might be buying tickets out of that is not really our concern. 
um, and you'd be surprised how much pressure there is from that side of um, the ledger to really sort of maximise what they can get out of it in terms of those sorts of things and what great and um, and as, as you said like with, with the music industry and you know that there's a lot of people writing at different levels and um, it's very easy to sort of cut people off um, in terms of interviews obviously access to things generally uh, if you have a sort of institutional weight behind you like you work for a, a big outlet you can sort of withstand that easier but if you're sort of just starting out then the, that pressure can can't be great no, no, I think that's really good. And I, I was going to, as an editor, I definitely feel like things have become more transactional in terms of dealing with publicists who are an inevitable part of the system. I'm really curious if you feel like you encounter that quite a lot, that kind of transactional thing where you feel there's that pressure you won't get the thing if you don't do the other thing and like whether your role is kind of on the front line of that. No. Every day, absolutely every day. It's a, it's a constant occurrence, I think, in not to divide it into sort of old mastheads like the, the Age and Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian and sort of new media, but in new media it's more of the Wild West and, you know, it can, because you're friends with a lot of these people, it can be very damaging, um, to, which is, you know, the line between your personal and professional lives gets blurred so much and so you're hanging out with these people constantly and then they're also asking you for things and then it's just, it's a very tricky Thing to try and to try and navigate. And I think um, the, the idea of, of faint praise when it's not deserved obviously does no no good for someone in the long run. And, you know, and I just mean here in terms of artists who, who you may have an association with, not necessarily just being friends, but who you, who, who you rub up against a lot. There's not a lot of point in in, in the long run in, in doing in writing about them in a fake way. I've heard friendships compromised by telling people an uncomfortable truth. I guess. And some people don't want to know that uncomfortable truth. That's but that's the nature of the game. To be prepared to do that, it's not like we want disposable friendships. So in a way, it's probably easier not to have too many friends in the business. But it sort of solves that problem. Beyond that, I think the relationship between the publicist and the journalist is one of mutual benefit. Ultimately, the publicist needs the story, and the journalist needs to write a story, and Hopefully the two converge in a way that's um, useful to both parties without any sense of obligation being set up. And God knows I've had some publicists that clearly felt very little obligation towards me. I remember one year someone was coming out for Sydney Festival many years ago, I hasten to add, and this artist was very specific about when they would be interviewed. And it was at 3 a.m. my time. And I suggested to the publicist that this didn't really cut it in my scheme of things. And that, to me, it's at that point that the publicist should step in and say, well, let's settle for something that's vaguely acceptable, like midnight or 6 a.m., but really 3 a.m. just completely carves the night and a half. And in this event, it didn't happen. And I duly set an alarm for 2.45 and got up and in a very grumpy frame of mind interviewed this person and uh, I've never let it happen again. I would simply never do the story if that was all I was being offered these days. It was uh, memorable. Come back, yeah, just pianist, I'll come back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ashley, what is your perception of like how the role of publicists and marketing have changed over the time that you've been writing about? Well, not just the arts, 
I, I think the the game has stayed much the same, but the the um, the ratio has changed. There might not be as many writers and journalists that there once were. There aren't, um, at least in um, sort of old media stages. And there are just as many publicists, if not more. And yeah, and so that's 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 one very distinct change. But but we do have a sort of a, a flourishing of voices now, which is you know an excellent thing. So. Fortunately, it's just not a couple of old newspapers that matter anymore. Do you think that has an effect on pushing that writers as cheerleaders? Oh, absolutely. And I, I can, in the past, I've looked through some, some. I'm just trying to use a generic term to not identify them. Uh, sort of, sort of. Um, I guess those circulating magazines and being able to tell where various stories came from because I was pitched the same ones. And but, but look, it's. It's, I, I guess, you know, we're, uh, I mentioned the restaurant industry earlier, we're, we're in a very similar position where there's all these lots of voices out there telling us what, what, what's what out there and all these different reviews out there on TripAdvisor and whatever. But um, if you're in New York and you want to very quickly know what's what at a fancy restaurant, you might go and check out what Pete Wells says at the New York Times or you know, the Good Food Guide is um, kind of still the kind of the gold standard in that uh, Trusted voices matter um, in that. I've, I've drifted away from what you asked. But, yeah. <laughs> it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole, I think. Um, I might ask you guys, it's a sort of tough question, it's a big one, but what you think in the time that you've been um, writing about the arts, what the overall change, what is the trajectory that you're kind of seeing? I think for me the biggest thing that I've seen change is the album review is really no longer in my world. And when I started writing out, your sort of bread and butter 500 word or 200, 300 word album reviews constituted a large part of what you did. I can't actually remember now the last time that I wrote an album review like that. They just don't exist in, in the sort of media that I'm working in, which is sad. I really love a good album review. Basically the only online place that still is pushing big reviews is Pitchfork, but even them are probably only read by other music journalists. And that's probably the biggest change, is that kids really don't want to read those straight-up reviews anymore that say five, out, five stars or five out of ten. They want to read feature articles that are more like, this is why this album matters to you, this is why, this is what it connects to politically, this is what it connects to socially, these are the issues that it's speaking to. They don't want to be told what to think, they want to be told why they should care, and that's the biggest difference I think I've noticed. For me, the biggest difference is definitely the different media around now obviously um when I, when I started as a journalist journalist um the internet was just coming in and i just got a, i got a mobile phone when i got my connection and before then kind of ran out and found a payphone and all that but the days of the australian or the herald or whatever being the sort of sole voice that matters in, in the, this landscape is long gone and it's a good thing now you, you leave a, a production say a, piece of theatre and the first place you'll see after the sort of conversation in the foyer, first place you'll see the, the conversation will be on Twitter and you, your critics are often on there too, putting their first first thoughts down and sometimes if you're not hearing from them it could mean it's pretty rubbish but um, they're still trying to work out a way of saying that but the, the number of voices has exploded and, the, and what that means is that it's a, it's much more of a conversation now and the fact that Fergie old media like and, and myself 
you know, rest of running those album reviews. And maybe we shouldn't be, I, I don't know, but um, maybe there is a good reason why they're not happening elsewhere and we haven't caught up to that yet. But definitely seeing what else is out there um, is keeping all of us on our toes, you know, in all different directions. Um, and I think that's a great thing. So in terms of what's changed just in the last decade, that is a big one. I can point to two things. One is word lengths in the 1990s. If I was going off to review a music festival, I might get all of a broadsheet page with many photographs in which to cover it. You know, a thousand word review, which is inconceivable now. And one of the upshots of that is that I don't really review festivals anymore because a review of a festival is going to be about the same length as a review of a gig. And so you end up with one of those wretched shopping list reviews where you say one or two sentences about each act. And really, it's a, it's a pointless literary and critical exercise. In relation to the advent of new media and its impact, whilst I think that I agree that it's good that the number of voices have been broadened, I think that just like the restaurant review analogy, though, a lot of what appears that's only online is rubbish. And someone taking a shot of their meal and posting a review of what they are eating is not going to incline me to not go or not go to that restaurant in more probability. And someone making some high school kid's statement of, I just saw something great, or I just saw something awful, that has no greater depth to it than that, I find of, is hardly a contribution to the discussion of the arts. I think everyone in the room would agree with you, and yet I think it's sort of irrefutable that the traffic, you know, I hate to talk about traffic and numbers, but like for criticism and reviews is really going down the plug hole. <laughs> Which suggests that, you know, that maybe the majority of people do not so much care for the expert opinion. I, I, one of my jobs is to coordinate all our reviewers. So I decide whether to give them 400 words or 800 words if it's a festival. And in the majority of those cases, those reviewers don't work on staff. So we have to pay them. And, and so you know, it kind of comes to that other sort of decision that if, you, if you're reviewing all those shows, that means you can't necessarily pay a freelancer to do a big feature story there. What's more benefit, you know, if one's a sort of obscure piece of theatre in Adelaide, you know, it has an intrinsic, intrinsic value anyway, should we? Um, so th- these are the sorts of discussions that, that, that come up. But um, the, the, these critics might not sort of get the most traffic um, online or whatever, but I can guarantee you they're, they're very well read by, say, the, um, Sort of artistic directors of, of major companies, um, and you know that when um, you know it goes a particular direction, I, I, I get phone calls, um, and um, it, it's still maybe it's a vest, that's sort of a hangover of the old days that they think that we matter um, when we don't, um, but um, there is that feeling that's still there. Uh, whether or not it should be is another question. I am so interested because, like, we talked before about how, you know, your job as a writer is really to the audience, the reader, um, and yet, you know, the Australian is one of the only places in Australia that's really um, 
providing an ongoing archive of, of criticism that documents shows that happen. Well, that's touchy to me, getting on the archives. Sorry, I'm just joking. And I guess, you know, do you feel a kind of responsibility to be um, to the arts in a, in a higher sense, I guess, to be uh, putting something on the record? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's a, a little bit, yeah. Um, I, I mentioned sort of an obscure theatre company in Adelaide. I mean, we, I, I, I encourage our reviewers to tell me about stuff that's just not necessarily the major performing arts companies, the STC, you know, SSO and so on. Um, and there, there is a feeling that, that if we don't cover next week Hugo Weaving in, um, at the STC, that would be a sort of a, a loss in some way. Um, would it be? I mean, if, if the answer, if, if it wasn't a loss, then that would be um, the first step towards sort of these things not happening. And um, th there is a lot of talk about sort of arts coverage being cut and reduced, but at, there, there is a, a point of resistance at least to, to continue reviewing, um, even if the word length starts to, to drop a little bit because it costs money and there isn't a lot of money. but. Um, I think at the very least, I, I mean, personally, I'm getting zero pressure to, to cut out all these reviews. And it would seem like a very obvious place to start to save money. Um, but that doesn't happen. Um, maybe it's going to, I don't know. But, um, so there, there is a sort of a greater purpose, I, I guess. And, but whether, whether this is a sort of a... Um, I, I think we're a long way, though, from being a um, paper record um, approach where um, if we don't cover it, it didn't happen. Obviously, that's um, far from things. But um, if if um, I mean Hamilton in, in New York was, was always going to be big, but um, when the New York Times Ben Brantley gave it, you know, sort of um, was bowing down before it, that would have made a, a, a difference. And um, so look. I, I, it, it does matter, um, and I think it matters to the other side, but, um, yeah, it's a tricky one. Sorry, I was rambling on that. No, 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 that's, I think that's really interesting. Um, I don't know if it works that way. I think New York is so different, and but also Broadway is so different. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, uh, money came up. <laughs> when I think about things that have changed in the time that I've been an arts writer, definitely rates of pay have been cut. Um, I am really curious to know uh, if you honestly, and I, it's really obviously different for you, Ashley, but I mean, maybe you'll have a perspective on it, but if you, when you put on your freelancer hat um, from before and John, if you feel like you are honestly paid enough for the work that you do, <laughs> like because, <laughs> hilarious, I know, but from the point of view, when you start to break down the hourly rate for you to go and see a show and then to write about it carefully um, before you even get into the issue of your expertise. Um. Well, I'm in an unusual case, a basket case, you might say, in that I live in Katoomba, so I commute to Sydney to review a show. And therefore, the, action, the complete turnaround from the moment I leave home to the moment I file the story, including some sleep in the middle, 
was approximately 10 hours. On that basis, if we were just talking about it on that basis, then I earn per hour something like what you get working for McDonald's. It's not, no one forced me to live in Katoomba. So it's only my fault. And if I was living in Sydney, I might get twice what someone earns who works at McDonald's. But, um, you know, it's, if you do it often enough, you still make money. And, um, the, but that 10 hour turnaround does make it a killer financially with all the on costs of parking. And if you're leaving Katoomba at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, then at some point you're going to eat. And at some point you're going to have a drink, and at some point you're going to put petrol in the car. And um, the state government doesn't provide a public transport system that allows me to even consider commuting to see a show by a train from Katoomba and go home again that way. Not only that, they shut the M4 at 11 o'clock at night, so I can't even get home via the preferred piece of roadway. But that's another story. And even though that's an extreme situation, the 10-hour turnaround, I think in terms of the you know, hourly rate, that is not an exception. I would say that is the rule in my experience for people who are, if you just want to talk about writing about theatre, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'll, I'll just add that it, it's, it's more lucrative if you're sitting at home and writing something. I mean, if I'm sitting at home and writing an album review, that's kind of a doddle by comparison. To driving to town to see a show and then write about it. Even so, you'd have to listen to it two or three times, and that's two or three hours, and, and write 150, 300, 400 words. Yeah, yeah you know, you won't never get rich doing it, no. <laughs> when I started out freelancing, I think my hourly rate was zero dollars, and then about a year later, it was still zero dollars um, because for a long time, online freelancing didn't pay anything and a lot of the time it still doesn't in a lot of music publications. It's only recently that it's sort of been established that you probably should pay your writers. <laughs> what a revelation. Um, and so for a long time, and I freelanced for about two or three years, I was, I mean, obviously I had a part-time job because you could never live in Sydney off $30 occasionally for an album review, which was sort of the base rate I was getting from a publication called Mess and Noise, which is now no longer. Um, and faster, louder, you would get, I remember the first time I got paid $50 for an article and I thought I'd just absolutely hit the jackpot. I, it was just the greatest day of my life. Um, so in, in terms of freelancing, I, I would have no idea what my base rate was. For a long time, it was quite literally $0. I just wasn't getting paid. And I think that's quite standard when people are starting out, which is a, still a pretty big issue. Yeah, and I don't want to single out Junkie at all, um, but it's because it's a newer company, it's, there's a sort of lower base rate of pay for writing somewhere like that. Do you think that that kind of area of the industry is sort of sustainable? I think there absolutely needs to be an award wage for online freelancers, and there, there isn't at the moment, and I think that's something that the MEAA, which is the, the communications union, is trying to sort out, is how you can appropriately pay freelancers because these people are doing as much work as myself as a full-time staff writer are doing, or at least they're working on this particular piece for as much. So they should be paid, um, you know, a, a workable wage effectively or a workable amount for the amount of work they put in. Um, and definitely it's, it's an area that, you know, new media, people like Junkie and Pedestrian and Crikey are 
struggling with. And if you look at rates of pay across just all of the online publications, they're just up and down. It's just all over the place. There's no sort of average. It's just absolutely all over the shop. Um, so that's something that's really the publishers are trying to sort out and the writers are trying to sort out to get these better rates of pay so they can survive as freelancers. I didn't know that there was no um, uh, base rate for freelancers. And but luckily we have the wealthy people here who associated with MEAA because that's definitely something that needs to be looked at. Because um, the, the days of, of, say, critics being on staff having a full-time job with papers long, long gone. And you mentioned Sebastian Smee earlier. Other states have, 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 have got exceptions. Um, but at The Australian, we have um, every single one of our reviewers um, is Australian. Um, they're often, some, sometimes they're, they're paid per, per, per um, article. Others, uh, it's a more sort of a... Um, a regular basis, like Christopher Allen, our, our visual arts writer, or David Stratton, who wrote the film, obviously, um, they're going to be getting a set amount because they're writing a set amount each week. Um, but a generation ago, compared to now in terms of, of pay, it's just unthinkable the, the difference. Mm. But also the coverage as well. Um, in sort of the 70s, for instance, there would be a uh, the, the, the visual art shows that you see reviewed these days um, uh, up online or in hard copy um, would be in, in Sydney you get uh, show the Archive of New South Wales, MCA maybe um, look there might be a couple of other galleries but um, generally speaking commercial shows um, at, um, you know, at any of the many commercial galleries around Sydney aren't reviewed as such. But in the 70s and the 80s, um, there were um, three or four reviews on the daily paper the, the morning after, um, say, a, a big-name artist was opening his show at the Australian Galleries in Paddington. Um, so that there's, a, there's an appetite change and a space difference too. Thank you to our wonderful panellists and participating moderator. And thank you also to the copyright agency. Their cultural grants really are sort of do fantastic work and are worth looking at and applying for if you have any big ideas that you need a bit of money to achieve. And if you'd like to come to more of our talks, you can subscribe to the Walkley newsletter um, at walkleys.com. Our next one will be on China. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Helen Sullivan. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com forward slash subscribe to be the first to learn about new episodes, Walkley's events and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Miles Holbrook-Walk with help from the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Till next time.